Tonight on The Readout. How do you plead to the five counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? Guilty. How do you plead to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. Our show tonight is brought to you by the number three. Kenneth Chesborough becomes the third co-defendant to plead guilty and agree to tell a jury everything he knows about Trump's plot to overturn the Georgia election results. While on Capitol Hill, it was speaker vote number three that ultimately sank the MAGA hopes and dreams of Jim Jordan to become America's insurrection-friendly Speaker of the House. And tonight, more than three new candidates are throwing their hat into the ring for the gavel. Plus, a major development in the Middle East tonight as we see the first photo of an American mother and daughter after having been freed from captivity by Hamas. But we begin tonight with the dominoes starting to fall in the Fulton County case against Donald Trump after another one of his former legal advisors and co-defendants flipped. Today, Kenneth Chesborough unexpectedly pleaded guilty for illegally conspiring to overturn Trump's 2020 election loss in Georgia, just hours after jury selection began for his trial, which was set to begin next week alongside another former Trump attorney, Sidney Powell, who also entered a surprise guilty plea yesterday morning. Chesborough is now the third co-defendant to accept a plea deal, however, the first to do so on a felony charge. As part of that deal, Chesborough or Cheeseborough must pay a fine, do five years probation and write an apology letter to the state of Georgia. But most notably, he must truthfully testify against the remaining co-defendants, including Trump, as well as provide documents and evidence for the case. Chesborough may not be one of the more well-known characters in this whole ploy. This is a guy with a hard to pronounce last name and a pretty bizarre character arc, believe it or not. He got his start working as a research assistant for constitutional Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe. But he was actually one of the most important players in Trump's plot to overturn the election. Many have credited him as being the architect of the fake elector scheme, which makes his cooperation, to put it mildly, a very bad sign for the twice impeached, four times indicted former president and a major legal victory for Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. Not only was she able to flip two key members of the alleged conspiracy. But as the Washington Post points out, prosecutors can now avoid a trial in which they would have had to showcase much of their evidence against Trump and others, which might have offered lawyers a legal advantage heading into other trials. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, and Melissa Redman, clinical assistant professor at the University of Georgia Law School of Law and former deputy district attorney in Fulton County. Thank you both for being here. Lisa, I will start with you. This is a big deal. It feels like a big deal. It avoids the first trial. But in your view, what is the significance of both of these two, you know, speedy trial defendants flipping on Trump? Well, certainly, Joy, the two speedy trial defendants flipping here has the advantage, as you noted, of avoiding a trial completely and allowing Fonnie Willis and her team not only to have to preview their case for former President Trump and the remaining co-defendants, but it also avoids consuming their resources needlessly. And one of the key questions is going to be, at what point do Fonnie Willis and her team go back 
to Judge Scott McAfee of the Fulton County Superior Court and ask him to get the trains running on time for the remaining co-defendants in this case. You know, President Trump and those co-defendants were counting on having at least five months plus jury selection to push this off. That's no longer on the table for them. And they have pretrial motions due in December. Could those be expedited? They certainly might. And that's on top of the cooperation that Fonnie Willis and her team gained from Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbrough-Joy. Right, because they have to, Melissa Redmond, they have to now testify truthfully. Um, and, you know, who are they going to testify against? It's going to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump is at the head of this conspiracy. Fonnie Willis is now the most successful of any of the prosecutors who have gone against Trump. I mean, the New York AG, I would say, as well. Um, but she's now nabbed two really high profile, um, you know, basically, you know, confessions um, and also a somewhat lower level guy. So she's got three down. Is the strategy, in your view here, for her to just keep flipping them with an eye on the main prize, which would be Donald Trump? I would imagine so. At some point, you do want to get down to the main players. You still don't want to go to trial with 17 defendants um, trying to fit into one courtroom. So I do anticipate she will continue to offer plea recommendations to those who are willing to cooperate. Um, and those individuals are going to have to make some real business decisions, especially those in the circle of the two that have pled. So those in the those other other co-defendants involved in the Coffee County matter, they now have to decide now that both Scott Hall and Sidney Powell have pled and agreed to cooperate, what are my chances of coming out of this without a felony conviction? Um, and then and also for those alternate or fake electors, you know, what are my chances? To stay with you for a moment, because that's a really good point, right? So now she has gotten people to plead guilty in the Coffee County part of the plot, which for those who are, it's all it's all become a big jumble. This is the part where they were taking actual data from the voting machines and unlawfully holding voter information to prove this Dominion plot that involves Sidney Powell, that involves the bail bondsman. Uh, in the case of Kenneth Chesborough, as you point out, Melissa, this now involves another side of the plot, which is getting these fake electors to certify that they're the real electors. This feels like it's two big chunks of it, but the Chesborough part is particularly important, right? Because this is where they were actually defrauding the voters. Absolutely. So not only do you have Kim Chesborough, who has now pled guilty to a felony, you have those pre-indictment immunity agreements uh, with about eight of those actual electors, all of whom are going to be able to come into court and talk about if exactly what they were doing, why they were doing it, and what information that they had at the time. And, and Lisa, to come back to you for a moment, Chesborough um, allegedly, according to um, a lot of uh, great reporting, including Kate, our own Katie Fang, he uh, was offered a plea deal before, turned it down. Then Sidney Powell takes the plea deal. She pleaded guilty to solely misdemeanors. His was, uh, and he pleaded to a felony. So to me, this says that the longer you wait, the, the deal doesn't get better. It actually gets worse. Right. So that for everyone looking down the line, the first person to plea, they got the best deals. They got misdemeanors. Well, yes and no, Joy. And as Melissa probably knows well, Georgia has a version of what's called a First Offender Act that allows someone to plead guilty to a felony, but then essentially never have that felony entered on their record, provided that they comply with all of the conditions of their probation sentence. So if Ken Chesbro behaves himself at the end of the three years of probation that he's expected to get, it will be as if he never had any felony conviction at all. And that 
was critical for his legal team. Why? Because Ken Chesbro is a lawyer, and in most jurisdictions mm. where you're licensed to practice law, if you are convicted of a felony, that license immediately evaporates. And for Ken Chesbro, his livelihood depends on that. That was important to him and his legal team in any plea deal, and it looks like they got that today, Joy. Uh, let me stay with you for a second, Lisa, because in another case, now let's talk about uh, Donald Trump and his threats uh, against uh, people, members of the bar, people who are part of the court system. A judge has now threatened to imprison Donald Trump for violating the gag order. And this is in the New York fraud case. Uh, judge Arthur N. Goron said in a filing this morning that the court is fining Trump $5,000 for leaving up an untrue and disparaging post about the clerk, about uh, N. Goron's clerk, on his campaign website. We know that Donald Trump has also put up and doxed the Attorney General Letitia James. That may violate a gag order as well. He shared a blog article from a far-right political activist on Truth Social on Monday that has Letitia James's home address. So he's continuing to threaten people. What surprised me about Ngoron's finding, Lisa, is the $5,000 fine. That's a very tiny fine for somebody who, even though it's a lie, claimed to be a billionaire. Why so little? I think it was little because Chris Keis, who represents the former president in the New York attorney general's trial, went to the court today and said, look, this was inadvertent. It was left up on the campaign's website, but the defendant did as your honor ordered him to do. He took it off True Social. The fact that it remained on the campaign's website was mere inadvertence, your honor. And, and Goron, in his written order, said, I'll take it on faith that it's inadvertence this time, Mr. Keis. I'll sanction your client $5,000, but the next time it happens, let me lay out for you the buffet of options from which I can choose that include up to potential imprisonment. So I think this is a warning to Donald Trump the next time Angoran won't be so gracious. And, and Melissa, you know, I, it is an interesting sort of series of events, including what uh, Trump did to uh, Letitia James, because the threats that we know that Fonnie Willis has received, she's talked about them. They've been death threats. They've been racist threats, et cetera. Um, are, are, what do you expect to happen in this case? Because to me, I mean, I don't know what the judge is like here and whether this is the type of judge who would also really come down hard on Donald Trump. But what do you make of the fact that this is sort of a mafioso sort of threatening atmosphere that Trump is creating around these prosecutions? Well, judges are um, empowered. They have the authority and the duty to not only conduct trials, but to try to make sure those trials are conducted safely. And that includes the safety of those involved, the attorney, the court, the court staff. So I would imagine Judge Maxey would do the same if it becomes apparent that there is a need to institute some type of order that there are no media comments about the case. I don't have any doubt that he'll do so. Um, let's talk about this, uh, the, the gag order. So Judge Chutkin, there's yet the other case here, uh, has lifted a narrow gag order on Trump. And this is the 2020 election case. So she temporarily lifted her narrow gag order in Donald Trump's 2020 election interference case in Washington to give lawyers time to file more briefs on the matter. Chutkin said the order would be lifted while she considers Trump's request for a longer stay. She ordered special counsel Jack Smith's team to file any opposition to Trump's bid to lift the gag order by Wednesday. It, it, it is, to me, a little shocking, Lisa Rubin. Are his lawyers making the argument that Donald Trump has the right to attack Jack Smith and Jack Smith's wife? What could possibly be in their appeal filing? Because that is what he was doing. He was not only slagging Jack Smith, he was slagging his family. 
I think what will be in their appeal filing, Joy, is a lot of what we've seen from them in their opposition to the gag order itself. They will maintain that Donald Trump has a First Amendment right to political speech as the presumed frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination, and that Judge Chutkin, in imposing new conditions of Donald Trump's release, has interfered with his First Amendment rights. I don't expect that argument to be successful with the D.C. No. Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals that oversees Judge Chutkin. However, you can see in Judge Chutkin, despite her issuing that order, she is going above and beyond to grant Donald Trump every advantage in that appeals process so she can't be accused of being biased against him. And so if it takes a few more days for her to be able to enforce that order, she'll give it to him, knowing, I think, secure that the D.C. Circuit will ultimately enforce it. Uh, and Melissa, to you, uh, to just come back now to the Georgia case, uh, Steve Sato, who is Donald Trump's uh, counsel in Atlanta, uh, claimed that Cheeseboro's guilty plea was the result of pressure put on by D.A. Fonnie Willis and her team and the prosecution's looming threat of prison time and said, I fully expect the truthful testimony will be favorable to my defense strategy. He said the same thing about um, the, the, the Kraken lady's uh, plea. What do you make of that? Is that just brave talk? I mean, you, you kind of have to assume that the attorneys are going to put on the best their best uh, face in the light of all of these defendants entering guilty pleas and agreeing to cooperate and testify um, against the remaining co-defendants. So I, I think you do have to I, I, I have every um, faith that Mr. Sato is confident that his version of the facts are consistent with the previous arguments made by both. Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesborough. So he believes that if they continue to assert those those um, versions of the facts, that it will be helpful to his defense. Whether or not that ends up being their actual testimony at trial remains to be seen. And we shall see. Lisa Rubin, Melissa Redmond, thank you both very much. And up thank next you. on The Readout, the Capitol Hill chaos continues as House Republicans reject Jim Jordan once and for all with a bunch of new candidates now ready to throw their hats into the ring. The Readout continues. This. Jim Jordan is an effective legislator. The Honorable Jim Jordan of the state of Ohio has received 194. The Honorable Hakeem Jeffries of the state of New York has received 210. No person having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a speaker has not been elected. Humiliating as that was, that was not actually the death blow to MAGA insurrectionist Jim Jordan's quest for the House Speaker's gavel, tying the record for the fewest number of votes for a majority nominee. After retreating to yet another conference meeting in a secret ballot vote, Republicans voted against continuing to support Jordan as their speaker designee after a week of wasting everyone's time trying to get him to the necessary 217 votes. So two and a half weeks after booting Kevin McCarthy, House Republicans are right back to where they started. No House Speaker, no plan to find one. Jordan's Donald Trump-style intimidation campaign backfired spectacularly. His detractors remained unmoved, despite harassing text messages sent to their wives, like the ones shared by Nebraska Congressman Don Bacon, or the death threats several of the holdouts said they received, even as some of their colleagues tried to downplay the harassment as just part of the job. 
So far, I've had four death threats. I've been evicted from my uh, office in uh, the in Colorado. Uh, I have notice of an eviction um, because the landlord is mad. For not building, voting the will of their voters and their constituents, they're feeling that pressure um, as they should. The people want Jim Jordan. Today, we're getting, you know, more more of these uh, text things about, you know, uh, rhinos are stopping Jim Jordan. True leaders are, are followed, are followed. I have to follow you because you're my leader. I don't have to be pushed into you to be a leader. But it might help to ask why Republicans and Jim Jordan specifically put themselves and us through this, despite knowing for a week that Jordan didn't have the votes. The answer may lie in who has been helping to fuel the chaos, namely right wing media figures from Fox's Sean Hannity to right wing podcaster and the man who bragged about making Breitbart.com the home of the white nationalist alt-right, former Trump White House advisor, Steve Bannon. The Washington Post reported that Bannon had been publicizing the phone numbers of House Republicans. And Matt Gates went on his show to praise Bannon, Bannon viewers for the deluge of calls. Before today's vote, Bannon, who has been sentenced to four months in prison for defying congressional subpoenas and will go on trial for defrauding Trump voters with a fake build the wall scheme, was urging Jordan to keep up the abuse. Jim Jordan's finally listening. Get to the floor and keep voting. Rip their mask off. Let the whole nation, and particularly their district see, particularly these Southern congressmen, corrupt up to their eyeballs, the Appropriators and Armed Services Committee. Expose them to the nation. Let them sit there round after round and let their constituents see them. So now, after Jordan's very public and spectacular failure, the House will go home for the weekend after 17 days with no speaker. In his speech last night, President Biden made the case for military and economic aid to Israel and Ukraine. But that will have to wait. In a statement, the White, a White House spokesman said House Republicans need to end their chaotic infighting and their competitions to out extreme one another and instead join President Biden in working on urgent priorities. Since Republicans' lowest priority is apparently a functional House of Representatives, they'll meet again on Monday for a candidate forum. So far, at least 10 Republicans are running or considering a run with an eye towards a Tuesday floor vote. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, and Charlie Sykes, editor at large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. Congressman, I do want to start with you by playing a little sound mash that includes uh, Kevin McCarthy, Matt Gates, and one Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Roll them. We'll have to go back to the drawing board. What history will look at, the crazy eights led by Gates, the amount of damage they have done to this party and to this country <coughs> is insurmountable. I've never seen this amount of damage done to just the few people for their own personalities, for their own fear of what's going through. And really, um, it's astonishing to me. And um, we are in a very bad position as a party. Obviously, we're in unprecedented times. I think this continues to show how terribly irresponsible it was for 208 Democrats and eight Republicans to put this house into chaos. The most popular Republican in the United States Congress was just knifed by a secret ballot. Congressman Swalwell, I will give Kevin McCarthy uh, credit for growth, at least temporary growth. Maybe it'll be like his reversal on January 6th when he said Trump was to blame only to run and fall to his knees at Trump's feet. But he at least is now admitting it was the Republicans. Is that is that a good sign uh, that he's found real? I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Baby step. Joy, just to... <laughs> 
welcome Kevin McCarthy back to reality. It was Kevin McCarthy who struck all of these deals with the loan sharks in his party so he could become a speaker. He's the one that created the environment that one person could wreak this chaos and throw him out within his own party. And he was just so desperate to be speaker, not a leader, that he hung on for a couple months and then they all called in the loans and he couldn't pay up. And that's why he's out. So it's actually really also very rich that he was the one nominating Jim Jordan. I couldn't think of a worse person to nominate me than the guy that had just got thrown out. It's funny if this was a comedy. It's not funny when you consider what is at stake. And the Republicans have shown themselves as an opposition party. They're not a governing party. And the moment requires more than Republicans can offer. And the only path forward to fund the government when funding runs out in a couple of weeks, to fund the humanitarian needs in the Middle East and to stand with Israel as it defends itself and to stand with Ukraine as it defends freedom against Russia. The only way forward is a bipartisan governing coalition. And we could keep raising our hands and saying, take yes for an answer. We're here to give you those votes. Uh, Charlie, you know, it, there was a gentleman, one of the members of uh, the Republican caucus said, you know, a leader leads and people want to get behind them. You don't have to right. threaten um, and, and give death threats to make people get behind you. That's not a leader. And Jim Jordan did try that. He tried that sort of Trump strategy. And Trump, you know, has right. made thuggishness and political violence standard in the Republican Party. Exactly. I think that is, to me, the most right. stunning thing, yep. that he's normalized yep. the idea of political violence so much that Nancy May says, you know, it's just part of the job to get death threats. Oh, really? OK, so that's where we are now. I guess that's where we are now, at least among Republicans. Yeah, that, that's where we are now. Uh, but uh, keep in mind, though, that the playbook did not work this time. I mean, the good news is that you had uh, more than 20 Republicans that stood up against Donald Trump, um, Steve Bannon, and thought that the idea of electing Jim Jordan was too absurd and too dangerous. So that is the good news. The bad news, however, is that the chaos is going to continue. The chaos is going to continue because the conference itself is the chaos. This remains um, Trump's party. Uh, this remains a party that is still afraid of what Steve Bannon has to say. And for Steve Bannon, this kind of chaos, this kind of fear is is a ladder. Uh, this is this is his this is his brand. And uh, he has to be very, very frustrated that it did not work this time. Um, again, maybe just a green shoot that you had two dozen Republicans that looked around and said, hey, maybe we ought to stand up against the bullies. Maybe we ought to stand up against the threats. Um, maybe the critical mass um, will mean something. I don't know. Um, it hasn't It hasn't in the past. But this was interesting. It was so naked. It was so confident that if we attack people, if we threaten them, that they will cave in because they have before. And to your point, that you have people like Nancy Mace, and, and and it was others as well, who kind of said, well, this is a red herring, this is no big deal, this is what you expect. That really was a sign that they have normalized and they expect that this kind of tactic is legitimate and this will drive the Republican conference. To stay with you for just a second, Charlie, I just want to remind people who Steve Bannon is. Besides saying that he made Breitbart the home of the alt-right, which is a cleaned-up word for yeah. white nationalism, um, he has been found guilty of two counts of contempt of Congress. He was fined $6,500. It was stayed on appeal, sentenced to four months incarceration. Um, he was indicted on five felony counts, including money laundering, scheming to defraud a conspiracy in connection with his role in a fundraising effort to essentially 
lie to Trump supporters and say they were going to fund building the wall. It was a lie. They were spending it on their own personal fund. Uh, the Southern District of New York, has uh, he was pardoned by Trump for one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud in that same scheme. So this is somebody who defrauded the very people right. <laughs> he claims he's trying to get a speaker for. And yet he essentially is giving the, str- the strategery to the Republican conference. And has been for a long time. Look, I mean, Steve Bannon is who he's been telling us he is. He He's a grifter, he's an extremist, and he is a thug. And remember, when Donald Trump came into office, he was installed in a very, very uh, significant position in the White House, you know, with the ear of the president of the United States. So he's going to keep doing what he's doing. He's already launching a campaign against uh, Tom Emmer, who is the number three Republican who's been endorsed by Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Tom Emmer committed the terrible crime of actually voting to certify the election of, of, of Joe Biden. So this mess is nowhere close to being done at all until yeah, they do what Congressman Swalwell said, you know, say, hey, we're going to have to deal um, with the Democrats. We're going to have to have a bipartisan majority. But right now, that's a red line for m- most of them. Let's come back to you and give you the last word on this, uh, Representative Swalwell. I want to put up the list of the people who are putting themselves forward for Speaker Kevin Hearn, you know, Jody Arrington, Byron Donalds, who, you know, the the guy who got his head rubbed by uh, the guy who believes in lynching in Texas. Are any of these people, most of them didn't vote to certify the election. Are any of these people viable? Uh, No, and and they could put it on monster.com or like, you know, whatever job search engine (laughs) they want. It's become that ludicrous. Uh, And and the only path forward uh, is to come to Democrats. And and Joy, if, if you have crossed the Rubicon where you're not going to let death threats get in the way of you doing what you think is the right thing. Then you've, you've already uh, shown the courage you know, to do the right thing. And, and, and now the only path forward, the only way to get the majority of votes is to work with us, as I said, to keep government open, to fund Ukraine. You know, there's not much more that we really have to do uh, other than those efforts. And, and so we're just ready. We're standing ready to get things done. But let me just show you how unserious they are. One of their members, a Republican who had voted for Jordan, traveled to Israel today and missed the vote because he said he was going on a fact-finding mission in Israel. No, go on a speaker-finding mission here so we can get things done. We stand ready. We're competent. They're chaotic. Congressman Eric Swalwell, Charlie Sykes, thank you both. Coming up, Hamas releases two American hostages as U.S. and European officials pressure Israel to delay its ground invasion in hopes of bringing home even more hostages. More next. A major breakthrough today in the Israel hostage crisis. Two Americans abducted by Hamas, a mother and a daughter, have been released. We have a new video released moments ago that we'll have for you shortly and was shot by Hamas's Al-Qassam brigades, showing Judith Ranon and Natalie Shoshana Ranon. The released hostages are from Evanston, Illinois. They were kidnapped while visiting a kibbutz called Nahal Oz in southern Israel. The mother and daughter were greeted at the Gaza border by the Israeli military and taken to a military base deeper in Israel, where they were reunited with family members. Judith and Natalie are also shown here with members of the Israeli Defense Forces in a photo provided by the Israeli government. President Biden spoke by phone with Judith and Natalie Ranon, sharing this photo in the last hour. He told them the U.S. will fully support them as they recover and heal. Earlier, the president also released a statement saying the U.S. secured the release and thanked the governments of Qatar and Israel for their partnership. 
Biden maintains he is working around the clock to secure the release of the remaining American hostages. The two freed Americans are related to former Israel-based NBC News correspondent Martin Fletcher. Here's what he had to say about the release earlier today. At the moment, uh, the mother Soraya and sister Tam, uh, sorry, the, the mother Tammy and the sister Soraya are on the way to the border with Gaza to, to meet um, Judith and Natalie. Uh, they haven't met them yet, as, as far as we know, but they're on the way. It's going to happen any moment. The family was, of course, that she was the the, um, the, the thy friend, my the cousin, told me it, we're shocked. It's happy. It's unbelievable. We're celebrating. I said, "How much are you drinking?" And they said, "We're not celebrating too much yet because we don't know what condition um, their their family members are in. Are they are they hurt? They don't know." So they're not celebrating yet, but they're getting ready to celebrate. They're certainly celebrating that they're alive and well. Uh, I now want to show you that video uh, as promised. This is the video of the mom uh, and uh, daughter um, who were uh, have now been released, Judith Ranon and Natalie Shoshana Ranon. You can see them here. Um, and uh, we blurred out the vision of everyone else, but I believe they are with Israeli security forces. Joining me now are NBC News correspondent Hala Garani from Tel Aviv and John Brennan, former CIA director and senior national security analyst for MSNBC. Um, I want to start with you, Hala Garani, um, because this is a major development in terms of two uh, American citizens being released by Hamas, by the Al-Qassam brigades. Um, on the ground there, what does it seem to bode for whether or not we will see a major ground incursion in the next couple of days? Uh, that's a good question. Will it delay it? Will it change uh, the strategy on the ground as far as uh, the Israeli military is concerned? Because uh, two hostages were released today, but about 200 remain. Uh, and this is really due to the mediation of, of Qatar that has spoken with Israel, that allows Hamas to maintain a political base in Doha that sends hundreds of millions of dollars a year to the Gaza Strip, Joy. And so it wouldn't have taken much effort for Qatar to get these two American hostages out. The fact that they're American, in fact, is quite significant. We uh, heard from a Hamas spokesperson that they were released, these Americans, quote, to prove to the American people and the world that the claims made by Biden and his fascist administration are false and baseless. The big question, of course, uh, is will this lead to the release of more hostages. Uh, Hamas seems to indicate that if, you know, the uh, security conditions allow, not exactly sure what that means, that they would be willing to close the, quote, civilian file. So there is hope that more civilian hostages will be released. But there are also, of course, uh, military uh, hostages, troops detained, and those will be used presumably as bargaining chips by Hamas. And also, I would caution against being extremely op optimistic for a quick timeline here. Um, this might be a little crack, not an open door. It could be a trickle and not a flood of hostage uh, releases, as, as many of the family members and others are hoping will happen, Joy. Uh, you know, John Brennan, to bring you in here, because, you know, the release of these hostages who we can see them now, um, it does, I guess, for a lot of Americans beg the question, 
Well, if a major incursion begins and lots of bombing happens, people who you can see alive and well might not be. Um, and would that jeopardize the lives of Americans? It, it, do you think that that is part of the strategy of Hamas in releasing, particularly these American hostages who happen to be related to a, a pretty big time American journalist? I think it's exactly Hamas's strategy to uh, continue this extortion uh, of uh, the, the, the hostage situation. Uh, and by uh, releasing these two Americans, they know that America is the one that is trying to counsel restraint on Israel. And so by sending two of these individuals out from Gaza, I think they're trying to increase the, uh, the, the expectations of Americans that, in fact, there could be further releases uh, coming down the pike. Uh, but if there is going to be this ground incursion, it does put the safety and security of the hostages in jeopardy. But as Hollis said, I think this is going to be a very, very small trickle. Clearly, the government of Qatar was instrumental in getting these two individuals out. The Qatar has had uh, very close relations with Hamas over the years uh, by providing these hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, to keep Gaza afloat. And so, therefore, they use those relationships and contacts. But I'm sure the uh, Al-Qasim Brigades, which is the terrorist core of Hamas, is seeing that this is only going to be an effort to try to get this incursion delayed and to see whether or not they could increase the pressure on Israel from outside, from the United States and other countries as well, to get Israel to pull back on its plans to move into Gaza in force. Uh, we know that they have not pulled back on the bombing, Halak Arani. Um, there was a church bombing. An Israeli airstrike hit the grounds of the historic St. Uh, Porphyrus Greek Orthodox Church in Gaza City, which was sheltering displaced people on Thursday night. Israel's military acknowledged it had damaged the site while targeting what it claimed was a Hamas command center nearby. U.S. Congressman and Palestinian-American uh, Republican um, Justin Amosh posted on social media, I've now confirmed that several of my relatives, including Viola and Yara pictured here, were killed at St. Peripherous Orthodox Church in Gaza, where they had been sheltering when part of the complex was destroyed as a result of an Israeli airstrike. The Palestinian Christian community, he said, has endured so much. Our family is hurting badly. May God watch over all Christians in Gaza and all Israelis and Palestinians who are suffering whatever their religion or creed. I think for a lot of Americans who may not uh, even re realize that, you know, Bethlehem is in the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. A lot of biblical sites are located there. Um, and in Gaza, there are Christians. Um, what do you make of the bombing of a church in Gaza, a Christian church? Uh, so the Israeli military has said uh, that uh, because Hamas uh, hides uh, among the civilian population, because uh, they have uh, networks and perhaps stockpiles of weapons, uh, that they will hide in schools, uh, that they will target those uh, stockpiles and those weapons wherever they are. Um, there are claims that perhaps this church uh, was used for that, although on the ground we're not hearing that. Uh, uh, we're not hearing that from the people inside the church who were extremely upset uh, that part of the structure crumbled, killing several people. Uh, I coincidentally visited that church uh, many years ago when I was uh, uh, doing a story on the Christians of Gaza. It's a tiny community. At the time, all those years ago, it was barely a thousand people. So I can't imagine that it, it is more than that uh, today. Uh, and it is extremely sad. The loss of life is sad. Uh, the destruction of a building 
building, parts of which uh, were erected in the 12th and 13th centuries, also gone. Uh, so it, it, it certainly is for the Christians, the Christian Palestinians who have ties to this region, uh, a very unfortunate and sad uh, event, including for the former uh, Republican congressman, Justin Amash. Joy. Uh, and. And John, and John Brennan, isn't the challenge here that saying the church is hiding munitions, you're bombing a church. Um, and at the end of the day, um, there is international law. And in the case of the bombing of Baptist Hospital in Gaza, the Archbishop of Canterbury might be surprised to find out that they're run by Hamas. The doctors there who are trying to save lives might be uh, surprised to find that they're, they're a legitimate target. Isn't that the challenge here that, you know, this is a small, compact area, and people can't leave in part because the Egyptian leadership has said, I'm just going to quote the Egyptian president, Fatah al-Sisi, what's happening now in Gaza is an attempt to force civilian residents to take refuge and migrate to Egypt, which should not be accepted. Egypt rejects any attempts to resolve the Palestinian issue by military means or through the forced displacement of Palestinians. Um, there's nowhere for them to go, and their neighboring countries are saying you can't force them here to become refugees in Egypt. Yes, Joy, as you point out, it's so, so densely populated and the buildings are on top of one another. And I think the Israeli Defense Forces say that they were targeting something that was adjacent to the church and the blast then knocked down portion of that, uh, that church and unfortunately killed some people. And so anytime the Israelis take strikes there, they are, you know, it's almost impossible not to kill civilians that are nearby. And that's why I think it's just so tragic that we look at what's happening to Gaza itself and all the buildings that have come down. And all the people in the cities yeah. have been killed. It's over 4,000 to 5,000 people now. So, again, it's because Indeed. it's so densely packed together that it's impossible to yeah. really distinguish and to have only uh, only uh, militants uh, killed in these strikes. Yeah. Hala Garani and John Brennan, thank you both very much. I'll be right back. Humans tend to find safety in the black and white, in what's easily deemed right versus wrong. But while it's indisputable that Hamas perpetrated a heinous terrorist attack on civilians, the Israeli response and the context of the overall situation in Israel and the occupied territories in Palestine, some 70 years of difficult history, have complexities that aren't as easy to categorize into neat boxes. Hamas doesn't represent all Palestinians or even all Gazans. And there are many Arab Americans who have expressed empathy for the Israeli hostages kidnapped and those who were killed in the October 7 attack. And the Israeli government doesn't represent all Jews around the world or even in Israel. And there are plenty of Jewish people in Israel and the U.S. who are expressing empathy for Palestinians in Gaza. In fact, there have been groups of Jewish Americans demanding a ceasefire, protesting at both the White House and the Capitol this week, with hundreds arrested. I'm joined now by Stephanie Fox, the executive director of Jewish Voice for Peace, one of the Jewish groups that organized the protests. And so thank you so much for being here, Stephanie. Um, I saw those protests and um, it was very heartwarming um, to see it, just human consideration and care. What prompted your organization to do those protests? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Joy. Um, you know, this week we brought together 5,000 Jews in a massive demonstration demanding Joe Biden and other American lawmakers tell Israel to implement a ceasefire right now. Um, we believe this is the largest demonstration in history of Jews in solidarity with Palestinians. We were led by 25 rabbis in a massive civil disobedience where about 500 people staged a sit-in, you're seeing there. Um, and we did this 
while meanwhile the Israeli military is raining down bombs on Palestinians in Gaza, the two million Palestinians trapped by land, sea, and water, I mean, and air, ration, you know, they're, they're, the, there's no food, there's no electricity, there's no fuel. People are rationing food, drinking seawater. Um, people are trapped under the rubble. Um, you know, hospitals are out of electricity and whole families are being wiped off of the population registry because every single member, every, every single member, every generation has been killed. You know, um, we see beloved Palestinian friends and colleagues in Gaza uh, tweeting with their last few moments of battery life on their phones in English about what's going on because they understand that we in the U.S., have the power to stop this. You know, it's our government that is pouring billions of dollars into what we really understand as a genocidal war on Palestinians being done with our tax dollars as a Jewish community in our names. And so we showed up to say like, no, no, not in our names, not with our tax dollars. We refuse this. You know, you know, and it's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you want to comment on Marjorie Taylor Greene calling your protest an insurrection. But I noted that like 300 uh, of your members were arrested that day. That is a very negative context uh, for, you know, comparison to the actual insurrection when people were allowed to go home. What do you make of the fact that peace activists were arrested when people who were storming the Capitol were allowed to go home? Well, it says a lot about the values of the U.S. government, right, that, you know, Jewish Americans showing up to say absolutely not in our names, demanding a ceasefire now and demanding an end to the root cause of violence for all people there and for of 70 ending 75 years of oppression yeah. of Palestinians. But really primarily in that space saying ceasefire now that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of us were hauled out by Capitol Police says a lot about where the U.S. government's support goes. Uh, let's talk about, you know, there are some progressive um, Jewish folks in this country who say they feel abandoned by the left, that they don't feel supported, um, that they're, you know, Jewish people still are the number one targets of hate crimes. Um, how, what do you make of that, of people's feeling that there isn't so as much support um, for Jewish folks who are also scared and grieving? You know, Joy, I was I was raised to understand the core Jewish value of B'Tselem Elohim, which means every single life is precious. You know, all human beings are made in the image of the divine and every single life is worth an entire is an entire universe, you know. And I was also uh, I think about the core lesson that my great grandma Belle, may her memory be a blessing, taught me, which was that, you know, the thing we must learn from the Holocaust is that the world let it happen. You know, like, and and to me, being Jewish in my, in the core of me means that there is no such thing as being a bystander in moments of historic mm. injustice, mass atrocity. Like, there's nowhere else that Jews would be than the fight to end yeah. genocide. It's, it's, it's conceivable, yeah. you know. St Stephanie Fox, uh, you are awesome. We didn't do Who Won the Week this week because of all that's going on. But my sister, you won the week. You're fantastic. Oh. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you we'll for having back. me. Cheers. And that's tonight's readout. Be good to somebody.